Miss Shoshona, worries on point and on this podcast. It's Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're going to talk to a survivor who lived the horrors of Auschwitz and who was moments away from going into a gas chamber and who will explain how his story serves as a warning of why we must never forget this history and his thoughts on the rising hate of anti-Semitism fueled by anti-vaxxers and how that's an affront to the suffering he and millions of others survived. We'll talk about the convoys rolling through the GTA heading to Ottawa, and they won't be getting that meeting with the Prime Minister because all of a sudden Trudeau is now isolating for COVID. Well, timing's everything, I guess. New polling shows it depends really where you live in this country as to who supports it, but 28% do in fact back this convoy, which is a far bigger number than the fringe group the Prime Minister is calling them. What really happened during a pipeline protest that turned into a violent confrontation with the RCMP before December and led to several arrests, including two journalists? Well, we'll talk about the confrontation which led to rebukes across this country and scorn for the RCMP. Well, apparently we only got one side of the story. Tom Corsi's got emails revealing the other side to what actually happened. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. Our stories are a warning to this generation, to the next generation, that if you do not pay attention to what happened in the past, you are likely to repeat it. And you don't know where it's going to go. And you don't know who the victim is going to be. So beware. This is a warning. A warning that we are, as survivors, no longer able to carry on because we're losing we're losing against, uh, against time. Those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it, and sadly many don't even think the Holocaust was real. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, January 27th, and boy, what a busy day it has been. Lots of stuff going on. The Freedom Convoy, of course, rolling through the GTA. It is huge. Very big. There's a... A lot of people out there supporting this thing. You see the uh, bridges lined with people, the highways lined with people. You know, this thing started about vaccine mandates and it's uh, morphed into a much bigger stew of anger over pretty much everything that's happened in the last two years. It even got support today from Elon Musk. So we will talk about this because some interesting developments on this front. Other big news we'll chew on. Um, It seems that the medical officer of health has finally read the room and... He's now saying that we need to start learning to live with this virus. Well, yeah, three vaccines, that would be nice. I just hope those that he's talking to are listening. I mean, and if those who want to hide in their bed want to do it, don't bother emailing. I encourage you to stay locked down. Have at her. Enjoy. No one will stop you. But I want to start on a story that really won't get the due attention it should. Because today certainly is an important day. It marks the 77 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. And it is the day that we remember the genocide of six million Jews who were murdered by Nazis who couldn't get rid of them fast enough. And so the question becomes, you know, what have we actually learned from our history? Doesn't look like much. There's a study, and I'm sure you've been hearing about it, comes to us from a Toronto-based Jewish charity, Liberty 75, revealing that 33% of elementary and high school kids across North America don't believe the Holocaust even happened or that it was exaggerated. 40% learned from social media all about it. And so they want that, you know, they want Holocaust studies to be a mandatory part of the curriculum. And I, I, I don't even think this should have to be asked. I mean, if we can teach kids all about gender issues and 
racial issues, all the rest of it. I mean, surely we can teach them the accurate information about the culling of millions of Jews, no? Because we talk a good game, certainly, of being opposed to hate, yet anti-Semitism has been on the rise around the world for years on both the left and the right, and it's met with a shrug. But the fact is Jews are the number one demographic of hate crimes in this country. Ontario has seen a huge surge of reported daily crimes, everything from graffiti, physical attacks on Jews, you know, uh, synagogues, you name it. But by and large, Jew hate is the accepted form of hate. And if you don't believe me, you need only look to the creep of it across our streets and our universities. I mean, you look to movements like the, you know, anti-Israel apartheid, that BDS, Free Palestine, Al-Quds. All of these groups promote Jew hate. And I mean, it may come across as nuanced, but it is what it is. Al-Quds doesn't even hide it. They just parade on our streets calling for the death of Jews. They yell it. And yet not one of our leaders who is likely out there promoting Holocaust Remembrance Day, actually does anything to stop this hate, which is right out in the open. Otherwise, Al-Quds would not be granted permits to spew their hate at Queen's Park every year, and every year they are there. And yes, it's fair to criticize Israel. That does not make you anti-Semitic. But uh, if your message is to call for the destruction of Israel, what you're actually supporting is the eradication of Jews. If you don't like Israel and you want it gone, that means you want the Jews gone with it. Robert Kennedy uses the Holocaust to justify his anti-vax stance. He um, gave a speech Wednesday where he crassly implied that Anne Frank had more freedoms hiding from Nazis than uh, those who are unvaccinated. He said, quote, even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. I mean, I don't know who wrote that. I don't know if he wrote that, but I don't know how you write something like that and deliver it. And he apologized, but then he explained, you know, he was trying to equate past barbarism to mandates and restrictions. I, I'm against vaccine mandates, which is different than being an anti-vaxxer. They are not even remotely the same. But it is absolute, utter rubbish to compare the killing of six million Jews who are rounded up and gassed and executed are sent to camps to the restrictions placed on people who have a choice if they're going to get vaccinated or not. No one is going to come to your home to take you to a gas chamber. But it's this reckless talk which has fueled many to, you know, grossly talk like this. I mean, you look to the anti-vax movement where they're wearing stars on their clothing. They have somehow convinced themselves that quarantines or masks or vaccines and mandates are the same suffering that Jews went through when they were actually forced to wear yellow stars. They were forced to wear them. It was an act of humiliation. It was how they were segregated. And it was how they were identified so that when the Nazis wanted, they could come get them and send them to their deaths. So if you're wearing a star, it means you either have no actual understanding of history or the hate that fueled Hitler, or you just don't care. None of it's a good look. And you can have all the anger that you want, and I get it, it's very real, and you can disagree with the crap that's gone on for the last two years. I disagree with it. I think the government has been very reckless in overreach, but you cannot conflate and exploit your inconvenience to actual hate-filled genocide. You just can't. And you shouldn't. 
because you're part of the problem. So today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, and this is the day that we mark the murders of six million Jews killed because of who they were. And so the messages you will hear today is that we must never repeat our history, that we must stop the hate, and yet anti-Semitism is growing all over the world. It's being spewed from the left and the right. Uh, anti-Semitism is the highest reported hate crime across this country. And um, I wasn't shocked, but I was saddened to see a new study showing that 33% of our elementary uh, and high school kids don't think that the Holocaust happened, or if it did, it was exaggerated. And what they are learning, they're learning it online. Well, they should listen to my next guest, because he was just 11 years old when the Nazis invaded Poland, and he would be forced with his family into a ghetto before being sent to Auschwitz, where he'd be separated from his mother and sister and never seeing them again. And by the time Nate was liberated, he survived seven concentration camps and would move to Canada with his father, who would be his only surviving family member. Nate Leitzker is joining me now. Thank you for joining us, Nate. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. When you um, look back to those days, I mean, if you can, and you look back at what you went through, you know, standing in line at one point to go into a gas chamber and your dad saving you, uh, you know, you, these are the stories that you tell kids and explain to people now. Um, do those thoughts ever leave you? No, they don't leave me and they're uh, unreal uh, now as they, as they were uh, to me then. could not understand uh, what was happening at that time. I mean, I was uh, at that time. I was uh, already 15. Uh, you know, the war broke out. I was 11, as you mm -hmm. mentioned. And uh, by the time we went to the ghettos and uh, all kinds of other things, uh, I was 15. But even then, I was not prepared uh, to experience what we experienced. By the the biggest jolt uh, to our psyche and to our life was that we were separated from each other, we were from family. We were uh, up to uh, this, uh, up to 1943, and August 43, we lived together as a family in a ghetto, be it, and a very crowded uh, uh, situation with very little food. Uh, most of our food came from soup kitchens. But uh, we were together. We had freedom to go from one end of the ghetto to the other. We could meet with friends. We could uh, meet with family members, whoever was still there, who was not deported to uh, Germany. But we were uh, we were free. Suddenly, you get you were thrust into a railroad car, and you uh, a few hours later you uh, disembarked, and you torn apart. And you realize that that railroad card that you were together was the last time you were together as a family. And this was, was, was unreal. And uh, suddenly you were torn apart. And uh, you, uh, you, I was uh, still standing with my mother and my sister. I didn't want to let go. So I still mm -hmm. uh, tried to step. My father jumped in and walked over to me, grabbed me by my sleeve and said, you come with me. And that was the last time I was with my with my father and my sister. And uh, so then I was into a, into a concentration camp. And uh, suddenly you become a 15-year-old boy and you become a prisoner. Mm. 
and uh, you are given a lecture that uh, people are telling you that uh, if uh, you don't behave, you're going to be you're going to be uh, executed by gassing. Nate, when you, um, you know, the freedom came, but the struggle has never really left um, for Jews. Um, you know, people went on, they moved to different countries, but Jew hate has somehow become almost an accepted form of hate where people, we talk about not allowing it, and yet it is, it is on the rise all over the world. When you see the state of the world, um, you know, and you hear people saying, we must not forget, we can't repeat the history, the mistakes of our history, and then you see what's going on now, what is your greatest concern? that people are ignorant. Like you mentioned that uh, 33% of the people who do not know or deny that the Holocaust happened. Uh, that, is, uh, that, is a, that is a fantastic uh, uh, situation. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's terrible because uh, it was ignorance that led uh, the German people to commit murder because they were told by their leaders that the, the Jews were this and that. They were fed kind, all kinds of lies, propaganda, uh, mm. half-truth, and uh, they accused the Jews of crimes that they have not committed. And uh, the, the nation was turned around and was, uh, you know, the most uh, progressive, progressive most, uh, nations in the world suddenly became uh, a, 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 a nation of murderers. This is this was this is completely, uh, un, uh, you know, completely uh, unacceptable. And this this is this is something that can happen here too. You know, we are a nation of uh, minorities, and mm -hmm. when uh, the one minority is being singled out for discrimination, half truth, and uh, lies, uh, the other minorities suffer as well because you never know when it's going right. to turn over to the other minority. And it is our government's role that we have to, that they have to protect us from, from harm, that we should be able to, uh, we should be able to live in harmony and in peace. We should be able to send our schools uh, in, uh, with, in, without uh, being subject uh, to harassment or uh, mm -hmm. uh, their lives should be threatened as it is in the in synagogues, in, uh, in, you know, people should be able to go to worship uh, their God according to their own conscience without mm -hmm. being harassed and uh, shotted or taken hostage just because they're, they're of a different religion. And it can happen to anybody. And this is the point, that just it can happen to everybody. It's everybody's business to make sure that people are not, are not ignorant of what happened in the Holocaust, because the Holocaust will repeat itself, maybe not against the Jews, but against other minorities. Maybe, right. you know, not in, maybe not in this decade, but in another decade, when hatred right. is controlled and rampant, you don't know where it starts. As you saw, you know, with yeah. the, the situation in the United States, how easy it is for, for, for a country to become riotous to, for to lose its uh, moral uh, moral uh, identity and moral uh, the uh, direction and uh, become uh, you know a, a, a loss of democracy lost democracy will lead to the dictatorship and dictatorship 
will lead to another genocide. And we see and so it Nate, all over the world. Well, we are, sadly. Yeah. Nate, when, I, when you see, you know, the anti-vax movement, you know, when you see people like Robert Kennedy who got into trouble for comparing uh, mandates to, um, you know, Anne Frank and her suffering, uh, when you see the anti-vax movement with their stars on, what do you say to them? What, what, what should they know? Because I, I don't know if they're just ignorant or if they're just completely blind. But, but what, do you say, what do you say when you see that? Both things are the same, whether they're blind or they're totally ignorant, because totally ignorant, ignorance is blindness to their mind. And, you know, you're absolutely right. And, you know, something it's so ridiculous. The comparison is so insidious that it is beyond realm of understanding. And therefore, you know, it doesn't bother me. It's so crazy that it doesn't bother me. You know, if something is close to the line, that it bothers me because then it can be misinterpreted. But this is so far off that it is laughable. Nate, I, I very much appreciate um, you spending some time and talking with us. I know that you speak to kids and schools and you spend your time in life um, teaching others and, and making sure that they remember their history. And I, I very much appreciate you talking to us. You're welcome. And I hope, I hope that the audience takes what I'm giving because what I'm saying is, you know, survivors are now at the end of our life. Our stories are told. It is now in the realm of the public uh, public knowledge. And you know what it is? Our stories are a warning to the, this generation, to the next generation, that if you do not pay attention to what happened in the past, you are likely to repeat it. And you don't know where it's going to go. And you don't know who the victim is going to be. So beware. This is a warning, a warning that we are, as survivors, no longer able to carry on because we're losing, we're losing against, uh, against time. And now the ball is in your hands. You have to run with it. You have to educate your children and your, uh, and your children's children in order for the world to move forward in tranquility and in peace that everybody should have the God-given life that they have that they should be able to live in peace without being yeah. subjugated to hatred and xenophobia, well, I, racism. I, I give you my promise that uh, that conversation will happen. I will take that ball and run with it and uh, in honor of you and the others. So I thank you very much, Nate, for joining us. You're welcome. That is uh, Nate Leitziger, uh, who I think has a very valuable lesson to teach, and I hope people do listen to it. The small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for each other, who know that following the science and stepping up to protect each other is the best way to continue to ensure our freedoms, our rights, our values as a country. Well, that may play well to the base, but I think the Prime Minister and other politicians risk ignoring a very real anger that is growing in this country, and it seems to have coalesced with this convoy that began as a pushback to vaccine mandates and has now, you know, turned into this rolling convoy of frustration of two years of what a lot of people see as government overreach. And Maru Public Opinion Polling um, looked into this, and they find one in three 
which is 28% of Canadians fully support allowing unvaccinated drivers to cross the U.S. border, Canadian border, without difficulty to get us our food and our goods. A full majority, 72%, believe that the border should be flat out closed to truckers unless they're either fully vaccinated. Now, I'm not sure that maybe they don't realize that 70% of our goods come in and out of this country on trucks, but nonetheless, I don't even know if people actually know what to make of this convoy because the message keeps changing. But let me bring in the man who dug into the numbers. John Wright joining me. He is the Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. Good to have you, John. Good evening, Alex. All righty, so let's dig into this number. I mean, on one side, you've got a large majority who believe that the truckers um, should be fully vaccinated. But, you know, 28% people will kind of laugh at that. That's still a huge number of people who actually do support this. Yeah, approximately 10, 8 to 10 million people across this country. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the other 72%, they actually split into two parts, <clears throat> one third of the entire group or half of that one um, believes that there should be full on fully vaccinated people. The other was the option that was kind of halfway. And that was to have some kind of a test that had been shown in the last 72 hours. So, I mean, we've got in this country really three different groups of people. We've got one set at one end that wants no vaccines. We've got one set at the other end that has, you know, being committed to having them. And then we have a group in the middle that depending upon which way they hear, you know, persuasion, they will move in one direction or the other. Right. I mean, but when the prime minister calls it a, a minority fringe group, I mean, 28 percent, that I mean, that, that would be as many people who vote for the NDP. I mean, he was elected, as I recall, on 29 percent. So it's not exactly. Has he misread the room? Well, I don't you know what the prime ministers use a lot of rhetoric over the last number of years to, you know, demonize and weaponize certain things in certain groups. You know, to to suggest that this group is just representative of fringe, when in fact the ballot question was about moving across borders and things like that, is probably not, you know, accurate. The thing that that has changed, and I think you hit the nail on the head right off the top of the show, and that was, we're not really sure what this this convoy has morphed into. I mean, it, it was very clear when I did the poll on Monday, actually from the weekend and into Monday, what this was about. And it was about a vaccine, um, you know, being vaccinated in order to come back and forth over the border. But that, in fact, is now changed. It's marked into kind of this freedom, uh, no mandate, anti-vax, uh, alienation type convoy that's coming mainly from the West, although it is being joined by others. But that's the sense of what you get. So it's it's kind of pandered to the political side of the prime minister who then says, look, if that's all it is, then it's not worth talking to. I mean, that's, that's how it's being played out now. Yeah. And I mean, there's been some confusion. I mean, people are calling it an anti-vax uh, convoy. It was never an anti-vax convoy. It's a, it, they're against vaccine mandates, which is, I mean, a lot of them are vaccinated. Most truck drivers are vaccinated. It's a get, it's the fact that they don't want it forced on people, which I don't believe in vaccine mandates. Uh, I'm fully vaccinated. I just don't think it should be forced on anybody. So there's, I think there's some confusion there. But do you get the expectation now that it's kind of been playing as a bigger story over the last few days that it will start to change the numbers of how people see this because when you talk about the issue and then you see some of the images like there's there's the polling and then you see what's happening on the roads where you've got people lined up on bridges with Canadian flags and they're on the highways I mean right across the country this is this is playing it's also getting attention from all over the world I mean Elon Musk has now weighed into this thing and so do you get the sense that your polling is going to start swinging 
I'm not sure it's going to swing, but I do think that it's going to be dependent upon what happens in Ottawa ultimately. You and I have been around the political game a long time, and we do know that you know, if you show up and you siege a city and it causes difficulties and if people can't get to hospitals or something you know, doesn't work or if it tips sideways and you end up having desecration or violence involved, you automatically expel yeah. anybody who might have come into it. So it's, I think it's a little bit like Spider-Man, right? And you're handed a great deal of responsibility because you've got this convoy rolling. The question is whether or not you use it appropriately. Well, no, Saturday or Sunday, whether or not that, that's been done widely. Yeah, and so it becomes a bit of a, you know, it's been very politicized. I mean, you've got the Prime Minister coming out and calling it just this minority fringe group and kind of casting it off. Aaron O'Toole coming out today saying, let's cool things down. I'm asking all the parties, just everybody take a step back. Let's not galvanize people. Let's, like, cool things down. I guess, you know, that's his stance now. A number of his MPs have been out there greeting uh, the convoys. Um, but again, they're all trying to position themselves so that they land on the right side of history once this thing hits, because you're right. It only takes one idiot to cause a lot of problems, and then it ruins it for the truckers, but it certainly will become a political nightmare for whomever stood on the wrong side. But the, the truckers are tapping into something. I mean, you know, yeah. you may not agree with every part of this, but there's great frustration. 48% of people in this country are frustrated over how we are enduring this and when it's going to end. And, you know, we're anxious about it. I think you started to see in the province of Ontario things start to loosen up. And even the chief medical officers, you know, laying the groundwork thing, we're going to have to live with this as we go forward. So they're, they're kind of at the at the beginnings of what may be the opening up of things. But people are very frustrated and they want to move forward. And I think we're just on the verge of having that happen. Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting to see what happens over the next coming days. Where do you think the next question comes from? Because, you know, we're watching other countries open up. You've got the UK that's lifting restrictions. Denmark has lifted restrictions. You know, America's just kind of moved on with life. Everyone seems to be taking a different narrative, unless you live in Ontario and Quebec, where we're terrified of leaving the house. That seems to be kind of, you know, the apocalyptic fear that we're, we're uh, you know, shrouded in. Um, and so, you know, where do you see this moving next? You see this being the turning point where people say, you know what? I mean, we've started to see a couple of polls where people are just like, I'm going to get it, I'm fine. Are we at the turning point where people just say, I'm done? Uh, well, again, you're going to have about a third of the public who says that anyways, and then the other third might join in. There'll be a group of people who say that they don't. But listen, I think the critical thing is that in the United States, you don't have a health care system that they depend upon the, the collective public. They don't have the public system that we have here. And so, I mean, across this country, <clears throat> restrictions have been brought in oftentimes because that ICU or that hospitalization element has been clogged up. And you can't, you know, I know of people, even within my own family, who have been diagnosed with cancer yeah. who can't get treatment because yeah. of that. So that, I think, has been the underlying part of it. If, in fact, it opens up and we don't end up with that again, then I think we start moving forward into the sunshine of the spring and the summer. But if, in fact, we, we clog it up, I think that's going to be different. It's not the same in other countries because it's different systems, but that's what we have here. Yeah, and just quickly before I let you go, John, and I think you might have touched upon it, um, as far as your polling, um, I'm sure that galvanization is further in the West, um, but was there an area, I mean, is it Quebec and Ontario who are most in favour of these vaccination mandates? And, and, and I would assume that the politicians all poll on these things, and that's where they, they kind of, you know, start trying to make their policies. But it, did you see it in one area versus another? Well, the mandates are usually um, in British Columbia, Atlantic Canada, 
and in uh, Quebec. They soften a bit when you get into Ontario and in Alberta, and they heighten a little bit more when you get into Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So it depends on, on what province you're in. The demographics, though, they hold pretty similar ranks, you know, kind of across the board for each. But those are the provinces where you get the, the ebbs and flowing of where it is. Fascinating. I'll be interested to see what you uh, find next in uh, when you check the temperatures. So I appreciate you breaking it down. Alex, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. That is John Wright, who is uh, with Maru Public Opinion. So there you go. Tech checking the temperature on that. Did Canadians get the whole story about a confrontational protest at a BC pipeline? No, they did not. This happened um, just before Christmas when there was this confrontation between the RCMP and First Nation and environmental protesters at a Wet'suwet'en protest camp that was trying to stop the construction of the Coastal Gas Link pipeline. And this is a pipeline that was not just approved, but it had a lot of support in many Indigenous communities. And the protesters ended up blocking off the road, which trapped several of the workers inside who could not get out to get food or water or anything. So police moved in to remove the protesters and arrested 15 people, including two journalists. And at the time, the reporters accused the officers of coming in violently and arresting them at gunpoint and that they weren't read their rights. Well, this was rebuked by politicians and media across the country, except emails obtained by the Department of Public Safety by Black Locks reporters seems to tell a very different story, which is where we meet up with our friend Tom Korski, who is the managing editor of Black Locks Reporter, and who got that scoop. Hello, Tom. Hi, Alex. Yeah, not often we get to uh, talk twice in a row, but I'm glad to have it, because this was a very big story before the Christmas break, where you had these this violent kind of protest, and everyone was aghast at what happened. And then you find out, no, no, there's another side to the story. And this is the version presented by the Department of Public Safety and uh, to its minister, uh, Mr. Mendicino. So not an opponent of the environmental group or the reporter in this case, uh, for one of them was for the CBC, publicly funded. The other was for the Narwhal, an environmental advocacy website, also publicly funded. This is a big problem, Alex. This story drew international attention and condemnation. The RCMP were depicted uh, by some commentators as sort of a Gestapo, or, you know, barging into this cabin of these peaceful, unarmed protesters with barking dogs, guns, and a chainsaw. Very, inspired very dramatic YouTube video that has been seen hundreds of thousands of times. Problem said the police and the, and the Minister of Public Safety in this memo. What was not shown and not reported by the reporters at the scene was the fact the police stood outside the cabin for an hour and more, reading the court injunction, explaining their role. At no point do the journalists identify themselves as such until they're in custody and the arrest is underway. This is a serious problem, Alex. Uh, everyone mm -hmm. understands the concept of advocacy journalism, but you can't leave out facts. We cannot get answers from the Narwhal or the Canadian Association of Journalists that describe the RCMP's conduct as misconduct and disgusting, a national disgrace. A lot of questions here. 
Yeah, and, and ultimately the charges uh, were dropped against the two reporters, as I understand. But hey, I mean, don't let facts get in the way of a good story. But herein lies the problem. Um, why didn't the public safety minister come out and clarify that? Because there is an issue. I mean, we get these protests and they do shock people and then people go away with only one narrative. But why wouldn't they be more proactive in making sure that, that there was, um, you know, a full reading of the facts? Mendicino was never asked. It never occurred to him. He was asked uh, briefly once, and he's a former uh, Crown prosecutor, and the minister said, you know, yeah, this was unfortunate, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, meanwhile, there's no doubt he had a memo on his desk that indicated that the uh, according to the police version, they were there. This was a misrepresentation of what occurred, and it was a very serious misrepresentation. You know, in this business, Alex, I've got to tell you a couple of secrets. This is 40 years in the newsroom. You always look for the reason not to report the story. That's called being fair-minded. You don't leave out facts that you may not like. When you look for a reason not to report the story, and you can't find one, you got a hell of a story there. But if you don't want to report the fact, as according to the uh, government memo, that you don't identify yourself as a reporter for more than an hour, the police memo said the people in the cabin, while the cops are trying to communicate with them, exchange derogatory remarks. It almost looks like you're manufacturing a point of confrontation so you can cry press freedom. That's not a good look, Alex. Well, it's not. And you're also taught in journalism school, do not make yourself a part of the story. I mean, uh, you know, I've covered a lot of protests. I get how they can get very heated. I, I you know, I was covered off G7 with the black block. I mean, I've seen it. And um, and so I can see how these things get out of control. But I also know that, generally speaking, when you're at a protest and the cops are there and it's getting heated, you say, look, I'm a journalist, here's my credential. And generally speaking, they'll kind of step back and, and calmer heads will prevail. But on the flip side, you know, this is one of those stories that also infuriated a lot of Indigenous groups that are part of the coastal uh, link gas line who want the project to go forward, who were very angry that that this confrontation happened because they, they actively want this and they felt like only uh, one group gets kind of the, the story and then it doesn't actually tell the facts. That is, Indigenous groups do actually want pipeline. It's not all of them who don't. You know, I mean, no, there's no doubt that there are five or six different sides to this story. But no one side gets to omit or uh, fail to present certain facts that may undermine a point of view. Alex, if this is what passes for media reportage in this country now, subsidized by the taxpayers of Canada, we're so far down the slippery slope, we don't know which way is up anymore. You can't do it. Why should taxpayers pay for that? And why should anyone have to put up with that? It's answer time. We can't get answers from the Narwhal, and we can't get answers from the Canadian Association of Journalists. Isn't that ironic? They just like to ask questions, but they don't like to provide answers. Well, the CBC Ombudsman has been very busy in the last year or so dealing with um, reporting that is not accurate. So is this going to go to the uh, is, it, is this going to get to them? Well, who knows where the complaints will go, but there's, there's no, I mean, this was raised in the House of Commons as a sad, yeah. sad instance of police violence. It was called police violence by the reporters at the scene. You know, 
I'm no friend of the RCMP, in particular the Commercial Crimes Unit, <laughs> but mm-hmm. no one has to put up with this, especially when you're doing your job and you're standing on the line explaining to people who don't identify themselves as reporters who may be calling you filthy names so they can do the big takedown video. That's a big, yeah. big problem. Yeah, and also at a time when uh, trust in the institutions like our military and policing are kind of at an all-time low, you would think that the government would want to come out and say, hey, just a second, catch your breath, here's what actually happened, make your own. Here are the facts, lay them out, let people make their own decision. But uh, good digging on you, we'll see where this one goes. Appreciate you uh, updating us. Thank you kindly, Alex. That is Tom Gorski over on Black Locks Reporter. They dug this up, and of course, uh, I thought... Let's get the other side to this story, so uh, we'll see if this goes any further. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Unfortunate.